This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 26th, 2024. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to look at a few developments that took place in the past week. We're going to begin with uh, some additional information posted by the New Jersey Society of CPAs uh, regarding the beneficial ownership information resources from Cameco that have been made available on their website. Again, this gives us a bit of an insight for what at least one of the major insurers of CPAs around the country uh, believes about what might and might not be appropriate for a CPA to take on as an engagement in this area. We'll also discuss a district court case where they refused to stay a FBAR foreign bank account report proceeding to wait a tax court result. And what's interesting, partially due to the age of the taxpayer. Because literally the case, one of the concerns was that it's possible the taxpayer in this case and or certain other key witnesses due to their advanced age might die before the IRS was able to depose them and get their testimony on the record uh, if they waited for a, a tax court case that had been started against the taxpayer. So interesting discussion. Also, some insight into the reasons why a court might have considered staying a proceeding. We also have coming up, the IRS announces a program, which is probably the biggest news that hit the news this week from the IRS, uh, to go after corporate jet personal usage. Again, I don't think it's going to affect most of our clients, because most of our clients probably don't have large corporate jets. They're looking more at larger companies and very high net worth individuals. But we will discuss what the IRS is looking for there uh, and remind you of the rules that are involved with use of company aircraft by employees. Finally, we're going to look at a lawsuit that has been filed by the state of Arizona suing the IRS over guidance they have given to states that enacted some sort of rebate or payment program uh, with federal COVID funds but made that payment in 2023. In this case, the state of Arizona is suing, uh, claiming that the IRS has inappropriately ruled that these payments are taxable and wants to try to force the IRS to not be treating these as taxable payments. That's, we'll talk about that. There probably is some question as to whether the state of Arizona has standing to bring this case. And I suspect that of what the IRS may try to argue, not an attorney, so I'm not really an expert on standing, but it does seem to me very likely that there may be an argument here that, well, nope, you got, nope, Arizona, you're not the harmed party. Had you not filed 1099s and instead then got penalized by the IRS for not issuing 1099s for these payments that the IRS believes were taxable, uh, then, then you would have had standing. Of course, you've been facing a whole lot of penalties if it turns out you don't win the case. This case, little different, but we'll talk about this and and how and one of the odd ways the state's trying to claim that they have the right to bring this case is they're going to lose uh, what's in Arizona called transaction privilege tax money, what you might think of as sales tax money. And we'll, we're not going to get into technicalities of why Arizona's tax is not a sales tax, but it kind of is. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, that's part of the reason why the state's saying that because these people are going to pay tax on these funds, they won't spend money buying stuff, and therefore the state's going to lose out on sales tax revenue it would have otherwise got into, and that's their theory for why the state has a right to move forward on the case. 
Maybe it works. We'll see. Let's talk now about the article. And this is an extension of what we talked about last week. But this is a new article posted on the NJCPA website entitled Cameco Provides BOI Coverage FAQs and BOI Resources. And this is published on February the 20th, 2024. It is available. It appears to the public. I didn't have to log in with a member as a member to see this. Uh, and there are a couple of interesting things on here. As we discussed last week, the letters that, you know, the, first, the letter or the document that was posted was really kind of an FAQ from Cameco referenced some engagement letters, but didn't give us the engagement letters. So this week, we're going to find out that we start getting a lot of those resources that were mentioned in the other document. One of the key is an eight page set of frequently asked questions that actually goes over a bunch of things related to the beneficial ownership information reporting under the Corporate Transparency Act. It discusses the basics of the reporting, the basic rules, and obviously this is not a deep dive. You know, I've done a ton of two hour question sessions. I've done conferences. I've done sessions in update courses. I've done tons of discussions of the BOI uh, over the past year. And yeah, it doesn't all fit nicely into the first two pages of an eight page FAQ for all the details, but Cameco doesn't claim it does. It's gonna talk about the very basics there. I'm gonna talk about how certain engagements, you know, what is the risk of unauthorized practice of law? How does it relate to the BOI reporting? And, you know, what exactly are engagements that, which this is the first time I've seen Cameco's discuss this, at least in something I've seen so far, where they're talking about the type of engagements that in their view clearly would not put you at risk because they would not involve the CPA giving legal advice or giving a legal interpretations of facts and circumstances. That is almost certainly the type of case I've mentioned. I mentioned uh, Jim Hamill had discussed at a conference I was at earlier where we're talking about the case of a single member LLC could be operating as an S corporation, could be operating disregarded, uh, but where the only owner is one person, it's very clearly the only one involved, right? There's no other agreements out there. And of course you ask the client, make sure there's no other agreements, but basically that type of dirt, simple reporting, now Cameco has effectively given the green light to that. And as Jim mentioned at the conference, I heard him speak at just for, I was gonna speak more broadly on the BOI, uh, was that, you know, statistically, that's something like, if you talk about S corporations, remember corporations and LLCs have to file this thing. And in corporations, it's something like 60% of S corporations have one owner only. And kind of, unless you really don't have an S corp, you can't really have any hugely complex capital structure. Or if you do have something that would violate, the, you know, that would cause you to have another uh, owner, shall we say, due to ownership of equity or effective ownership of equity, uh, you probably would have a no longer an S-corp due to the uh, one class of stock rule that could cause you a major problem. So basically, those that 60% of the S-corps, effectively, Cameco is now green lighting those, as well as almost certainly similar ones that maybe has more than one shareholder. But again, it's very clear. It's these three people. It's these two people. They're the only ones involved. We get the officers, we get them, we've got our reporting. There's no judgment going on. You know, they have direct ownership and the officers are 
specifically named under the rules that they're in the mix, so we do those two sets. We report them, we're good. So they don't think that that would be involved. They do suggest, though, there is a risk of UPL. And the key risk of unauthorized practice of law is effectively what I've talked about. As the ownership situations get muddier, as the agreements are more complicated, you know, as there are various structures involved, when it starts getting messy, that's when I think there's a real risk, whether it's unauthorized practice of law in the state in question, whether it's just that the CPA does not have the competence effectively because of lack of legal training to be able to actually make these proper, you know, properly to make those determinations. And therefore you shouldn't have taken the engagement. Yeah, either one will get you in trouble. So I think, I think we're now moving toward the situation that I've been kind of leaning toward all year and that I believe at th this point is probably where we're going to end up with. Because now, as I mentioned last week, both Cameco and Aon are effectively now green lighting of indirectly by providing engagement letters. That, that pretty much suggests, yeah, they realize it's a green light situation. They also have text of the engagement letters are available. And while Aon presented a single engagement letter that effectively had, you know, was for just, just filling in the simple form, right? Taxpayer, you know, client, you tell me who your beneficial owners are. You know, we might describe the basic rules like 25% ownership and, you know, certain officers or people that could have veto power or direct power over significant decisions, uh, you tell me who those people are. That sort of form reporting. In this case, Cameco goes a little further. They have the first letter is very much like the Aon letter. This assumes you are simply filling in the report and the initial report, and that, that's the letter they're giving us right now, is the initial report, not the updated report, right? Updated reports create a whole nother set of issues. And yeah, let's deal with one problem at a time. We're trying to get the initial reports in place. Right. But basically, your updated report letter would probably be very similar, except you want to make sure that you've made clear that you're not responsible for knowing when an updated report is required. They also have a broader one that talks about limited CTA advisory services, which does include filing the BOI report. But as I noted, it also discusses some assistance in determining if an entity is exempt some assistance in determining if a party is a beneficial owner and helping them uncover those groups. And that's, that's a little bit, that's much broader, I should say, than what the Aon letter or the first Cameco letter provides. Now, this again, is going to be one of those where the CPA's judgment, if you're a non-CPA, you know, well, the EA's judgment, which whatever, is going to have to come into play about when you're getting close to the unauthorized practice of law problem or when you're getting close to beyond, you're out over your skis, right? You're out ahead of yourself. This is not your area. I think seriously, anybody in these reports has got to realize there does come a point when things get complicated and messy enough and the real issue is a legal one, not just filling in a form. Uh, yeah, you probably need to be looking for legal advice. They also have a client notification letter that they put in there. That explains roughly to clients what this thing is about, how it's going to happen, et cetera. And again, like Aon, Cameco is suggesting, even if you're not doing the report, make sure the clients are notified 
about this issue because there are serious concerns about the you should have told me, uh, you know, complaints being filed against a CPA, EA or anybody else, you know, tax preparer who, you know, they're going to say, well, I, you know, I, I count on you to tell me about these things. You didn't. You should have done so. And I, I think you failed me because you failed to provide this data. And as far as I see, it's covered by your letter. Similar and with the similar sort of things we've had before about strongly suggesting that you do not try to cover this in your annual engagement letters. You specifically disclaim in those letters that that engagement does not cover any level of BOI reporting. That, that will be how this works. Now, the article notes something which I've been aware is going on and has been announced by NJCPA in their forums. I don't know was ever announced to the public, quote unquote, but I wasn't really a deep secret. Um, they do have pending right now a request into the New Jersey Supreme Court's Committee on the Unauthorized Practice of Law, uh, which could provide what looks to be the first in the country, unofficial, at least somewhat official, unofficial word from a state on the issue of what exactly in the BOI would be the nature of things that would raise concerns by the, in this case, the party that actually recommends prosecution for UPL, uh, you know, what would cause them to be concerned? And that could be an interesting document. Uh, you know, we'll just kind of keep our eye on that one. Um, it's, you know, I, I'm expecting that it will be in line with what we're seeing here from Cameco and from Aon. Now, Cameco does warn you, and I would warn you as well, that the mere fact that FinCEN indicates accountants should be, would be preparing this report is not by itself controlling because this is a state law versus a federal law issue, you know, a state law issue for unauthorized practice of law. But they also note that why we get to do the FBAR reports is because of delegation to the IRS for enforcement you know, and reporting for those forms. And I know, as I said, I've talked with people that have worked inside of the, you know, Department of Treasury been around FinCEN, et cetera. And there is a lot of speculation that this is simply not something FinCEN set up to handle. And therefore, they're expecting at some point that they will delegate to the IRS, which then will more clearly make it that this is covered under CERC 230 or not CERC 230, but the same, the law. Title V, United States Code, Section 500, uh, C, which provides that CPAs can practice before the IRS. And then under Title 31, grants Treasury the right to regulate that practice. But because it is limited to the IRS, you know, and this is not currently the IRS, that's why that does not provide you generally with an out in this area. Next up, the case United States versus Galliani. Uh, this is from the United States District Court for the Northern District of California. This is case number C, colon 22CV03365. And this particular uh, ruling came out on February the 20th. In 2022, the United States filed an FBAR case in District Court against Mr. and Mrs. Galliani for 2013 to 2016. Right, they're going against them, claiming that they owe these this money back to the U.S. Right, 
Uh, the U.S. alleges that they had a complex set of offshore structures for which they held a financial interest in or a signatory over various accounts. And this litigation now, as we said, has been moving on since 22. The case is in discovery at this point, and a trial date is set for February 24, 2025, basically a year from now. So we do have a trial date set. Now, at the same time, the IRS had started a related income tax return exam in 2016, right? So 2016, they start this income tax exam. And it's related to the structures that were also involved in the FBAR filing. But it's a separate issue. They should have noticed a deficiency in September of 2023. And this covered a bunch of years, more years than are covered under the FBAR case. And that includes years 2000 to 2003 and then 2005 to 2016. So basically every year from 2000 through 2016, except 2004 is covered by this notice of deficiency. Don't know what was going on in 2004 that somehow there's no shortfall, but in any event, that's what's there. And of course, a lot of this is whether they were sham transactions, therefore we should ignore the entities in question and instead they get taxed directly to the taxpayers. Now, Giuliani, of course, his wife passed away while the uh, U.S. District Court case was pending. So she has already passed away. And this is where like their ages are going to come into play in all of this. Now, in the tax court case, they were arguing, as we said, the IRS argued sham transactions were subjects of the FBAR case. Uh, the taxpayer filed a petition with U.S. Tax Court back in November. So remember, we've got discovery moving, a trial set for 25, February of 25 in the FBAR case. Now they start this tax court to dispute the IRS assessments for those years from 2000 to 2016, ignoring 2004. And what the taxpayer wants now is they say, look, we want you to stay the FBAR case in district court pending the resolution of the tax court case. Right, so we, we want to go ahead and have you stop the, this proceeding entirely and instead, you know, wait for the tax court case to finish. In theory, the resolution of the tax court case, Jairus will note, could be actually include not only finishing up the tax court case itself, but then potentially any appeals that they might file into, in this case, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So, you know, that, that's also part of the deal. Now, the court notes that generally it's up to an individual court to decide, it, you know, it handles the timing of cases in front of it. And they talk about when they are generally going to grant a stay request. And under the law, in effect, they're saying to prevail in a request for a stay of the proceedings, all of the proceedings, the court has to weigh any possible damage that may result if a stay is granted. And in this case, damage to the federal government that could complicate or undermine their case, right? That would be, or make it more difficult for them to present their case. Or look at the risk of that by the delay and, you know, figure out what that is. If there is a reasonable, you know, a, you know, a reasonable chance that this could result in damage, that damage is, you know, possible, uh, if there is a delay, then it's up to the taxpayer to show that there is an extreme hardship 
or in this case, say the plaintiff or the party moving, to show there'd be an extreme hardship on the re that I'm requiring the requesting party to move forward under the current schedule instead of delaying it. Right? That's the background here. They'll also consider the orderly course of justice. What is the impact of the stay and how could it change the trial? You know, at what level would it do? You know, does it advance or retard the orderly course of justice, right? Do we move forward or are we slowed up by granting the stay? How does that work? If there is a fair possibility the stay could damage someone else, most likely in this case, the non-moving party, and that's what we're talking about here for the most part, then again, we have to show that clear case of hardship or inequity. And the court found in this case that uh, there is a fair possibility of harm to the government from a stay. The taxpayer is age 88. His wife was similarly, you know, similar age, it appears, and she's already passed away, right? We're not going to have her on the record, and she's part of the, part of the FBAR claims go against her as well. The cases were consolidated. So, you know, they've got this, they have other witnesses that are also of advanced age. And, you know, that is a problem, right? The courts have a problem with that. The theory being that, you know, we may not be able to get this guy's deposition down. We may not because, you know, they want to stop the discovery as well, which would stop those sorts of things. And we also want to, you know, potentially have that person appear at trial. Right. So, the, you know, that'd be the key. And obviously the government has no way of getting, you know, you know, in theory could have no way of getting him on record and would have to produce other evidence of willfulness in order to have the claim be, be enforceable against the estates. So the court says that's a realistic chance, that's complicating matters, and that makes it worse. They also said when they're ruling on this, that the tax court is in its early stages, that case is just getting underway. And despite the taxpayer assuring that they're moving for a quick resolution of the tax court case, they want to get on the calendar quickly, you know, and they want all these things to happen, they already admit that it could be delayed by a number of things, right? The IRS had already moved for a delay uh, in this be before this was filed, was all to move to delay the tax court case, um, you know, and no trial date has yet been set. So the reality is it's not clear. And as the court notes, after the tax court's done, that doesn't mean we're done because we could still end up with appealing the decision of the tax court to the Ninth Circuit. So we could be looking at years of delay, not, not, not just a couple of months, not, not just six months, you know, or that sort of, or a minor delay, but rather, you know, many, many years of delay as this, ninth, as this tax court case works its way through the courts. And that was considered to be, you know, a major problem. And they noted the taxpayer also failed to show a clear case of hardship or inequality. Yeah, he has to deal with two cases at once, right? But he didn't address how moving forward with discovery in this case was going to negatively impact him, you know, regarding his life, cause huge hardship, cause, th cause all these problems, that they really didn't show how this was going to work. You know, you've got to demonstrate, not just assert, Right. Okay. You got two trials going on. Okay. Well, you know, 
that's fine. But why, you know, is that a problem for you? I'm sure certain enterprises, you know, certain well-off individuals that have a lot of activities going on may always have multiple trials going on, you know, that they or their entities are involved in. So, you know, we're not going to just wait for each one in order is the theory being there. And also notes, you know, that this case probably should not be paused, given that it's much further along the tax court case and details with the tax court case deals with a number of issues that are chronologically much earlier than here. So in essence, it's, well, yes, there is some overlap there. The vast majority of the tax court case deals with years that are not before the district court. So there doesn't seem to be a major advantage in, you know, having the district court rule on this, or I should say the tax court ruling, and that's somehow influencing the district court's view. You know, making some changes, having some other items ruled on. So yeah, in this case, they disallow the attempt to delay their FBAR case from starting in the U.S. District Court. This next thing was the big uh, feature for the week. The IRS announced an ex a exam program concentrated on the proper uh, accounting for uh, usage of corporate jets and reporting of the income from such personal use properly by the employees. So we're going to look at all kinds of issues. The item is entitled IRS Begins Audit of Corporate Jet Usage, part of a larger effort to ensure high-income groups don't fly under the radar on tax responsibilities. It is an IRS news release, IR 2024-46, and it came out on February the 21st. Now, this one tells you right away the groups they're looking for is jet usage, and they only mention jets which I also find kind of interesting, which because, you know, there are other types of aircraft out there. And probably, you know, while I'm sure some of you may work in situations where there is a jet involved, I suspect a lot more of you are working with smaller aircraft, right? That may be, you know, small single engine, uh, you know, prop driven aircraft. And, and again, they're impacted by this, but this is not what the IRS appears to be saying they're going after. They claim it's used by large corporations, large partnerships, and high-income taxpayers. So this is part of their issue. Now, part of that is obviously due to the political uh, positioning of stating, yeah, we're not going after, we're going after the big rollers, etc. So I understand that's political positioning. And I would certainly be have pay some attention to this if your client has any sort of aircraft, even if they are not a corporate high roller. So I, I wouldn't... Nothing excludes because the rules aren't really different for a corporate high roller than they are for your client who maybe has, you know, offices in four cities that are geographically dispersed because you're, let's say, in Montana. So you need to use that aircraft to go from city to city. Yeah, the same basic rules would apply. Uh, one thing which they're looking at here is the proper allocation of expenses between business and personal usage of the aircraft. Remember, business usage of the aircraft generally is going to be allowed. Personal reasons, those have to be accounted for separately, and quite often you're going to lose the deduction or have the deduction limited based on what was included in the employee's W-2. So they're going to look for that type of allocation. Obviously, that type of exam is records intensive. If you have a aircraft 
on, owned by the company that you know that you're claiming a deduction for. You want to make darn sure that the records are very, very clear about the reasons for each trip, right? That you're keeping it and how you determined if the trip was a business, primarily a business-related trip or should be treated as a personal trip. And also then have that information tie into the payroll system for picking up the amount that the employees should have picked up as a proper income inclusion. That's also a big issue that we need to worry about on these cases. As I said, this is an IRS announcement. Certainly, we are in the uh, type, time of years where a lot of announcements are made for political purposes to help whoever is you know, running for office currently. And whenever you deal with a presidential election with an incumbent, generally the incumbent controls the agencies. So yeah, you know, how much of this will be real? How much of this will be more something that uh, is mainly been announced to make it sound tough? We're not sure. We'll have to keep an eye on. But probably at least to some extent, they're going to do some of this because, you know, you need to be able to show that if somebody asks on the road, oh, yeah, we had this conviction for this entity doing whatever awful thing we claim they were doing. So that's kind of where we go. Finally, this week, we're going to take a look at a case that was just filed on February 21st. The state of Arizona filed a complaint, United States District Court for the state of Arizona. Uh, and it's a case entitled Arizona versus the IRS, uh, with a few other defendants in the list. Okay, it was filed on February the 21st, 2024. Now, the issue involves what something known as the Arizona Families Tax Rebate and whether it is whether that payment is subject to federal income tax. In 2022, the IRS had, we had a lot of these, you may remember, in early 23. The IRS ruled that payments made in 22 under the vast majority of these programs were excluded from income either under Section 139, which is federal disaster assistance payments, and 139 covers that, for any payments related to expenses incurred by an individual uh, due to a natural disaster, a disaster. And as we all remember, COVID was declared a disaster back in March of 2020. And that declaration finally expired uh, early in the, or not early, but in the spring of 2023 was when we declared, when it was declared over. So there was that period. Either that or under the general welfare rules. That's a more, you know, it, it, it's a concept the IRS has developed over the years. Uh, it suggests that if a payment is made by a government to an individual and it's for general welfare, general welfare of the population as a whole, uh, to provide assistance to the poor, all of those sorts of things, that's not considered taxable assistance. So they said one or the other would cover it. And in the other cases where it appears to be a refund of taxes, where, the re where it was essentially something that you got the money back up to the amount of taxes you had paid in some prior year, that then it'd be taxed under the income tax refund tax benefit rules of Section 111, which generally means these days, because between the fact that most people don't itemize and the fact that a lot of those that do go way over the $10,000 state local tax cap, uh, basically, yeah, the, uh, the state tax refund would mean still the vast majority of recipients of money from the program would not pay tax on what they received. 
But they noted last year that payments that aren't made till 23, well, things have now changed. Those rules may be different. The IRS eventually, in informal conversations with the state, called the state, and I've heard this from people at the Department of Revenue who are in a position to have been part of these discussions, that they told them basically toward the end of last year that they did not believe that the payment system Arizona had could qualify for exclusion under 139 because it was paid after the emergency had ended and that it didn't qualify for the general welfare exclusion because under, you know, they're saying this under Arizona's rules, and they did this for other state too, where the amount, the top amount it could be paid out for was lesser. But the reason it was specifically mentioned by some of the uh, Department of Revenue people uh, on a panel at the AFIT course, specifically why they, they knew once they heard that, that they were probably dead in the water um, because ours went higher. Uh, you know, it could be paid to a married couple filing a joint return, even if their income was at or slightly above $400,000, $200,000 for single individuals and head of house, single individuals and married filing separate. So, you know, it could go up to that size. I said, well, that doesn't appear to be helping the poor in general. And, um, you know, it's not limited to the poor. And secondly, they noted that if you didn't pay any tax in the years in question, uh, you couldn't get any of the rebates. Now, Arizona did not say, though, that you're, what you'd get be limited to your tax you got back. You just needed to have had $1 of tax liability before withholding and estimated taxes in the year in question to make it work. So it's a little bit odd how they go. And the IRS said, well, that's not a tax refund because the tax refund you know, can only go up to the tax paid. So obviously their view is this is something else. Now, I would say that's probably not totally consistent with some tax court rulings we've had for refundable credits because the refundable credit, you know, in essence, kind of how it would work and whether a, whether a refundable credit gives rise to a refund. You know, if, if we go back retroactively and apply it against, is that a tax refund or is that considered to be just standard income? And the courts have generally held that in those cases, that was a tax refund. You tax it under the tax refund side. But once you got above the tax paid, that difference was going to be considered just taxable income. And basically, you're going to have to pick it up unless some other item excludes it. Right? The IRS position, the COVID pandemic was declared in spring, was declared over in the spring of 23. Rebates here were paid out in October of 23, well after the pandemic had ended. And therefore, it's not a 139 expense reimbursing these people in the view of the IRS for costs incurred due to COVID. Right? That wasn't a goal. Also, they noted that the program was not aimed at low income levels. They said $400,000, not really low income anymore. So that's going to go. So we didn't have payments, didn't phase out until you got above $400,000 to $200,000, and then $200,000 for a single and married filing separate, $400,000 for married filing joint and head of household. Right? And the fact you had to have a liability meant that it, you know, it was not, you know, it, I'd have a liability gain rebate, 1% might have been enough, but again, that suggested it wasn't aimed at the poor, right? Because they often would not have a tax rebate, 
even though they might have been more damaged by the storm than others, or by the, in this case, COVID, I should say, than others. Now, so like we said, it's not an income tax refund. The payments weren't re limited to the tax paid by the individual. The state of Arizona has now filed suit. They are challenging the IRS position. They are trying to get you know, a ruling that the IRS can't enforce this. They're looking for an injunction on enforcement. This case could impact other states. And there are a few, if you're in one of them, you know you are, which had a rebate, which had some sort of tax payment program, but again, paid out in 23, as opposed to paying out by the end of, 20, of 23. Uh, which made it clearly eligible for, you know, being, or I should say, you know, essentially uh, made it clear that those payments that came out before the end of 23, you know, were, you know, basically back in 22. Yeah, whether they counted in the federal programs. Now, we did know that if you had a program where the payment was to be made in 22, right, it was a, it was a payment for 22 to be made in 22, but for whatever reason, for you, the check didn't come out to 23. We already had IRS guidance that in that case on those 22 programs, yeah, you still get the same result you would have gotten under the ruling, whether it's the broader one of you don't pay tax on this thing or whether it was considered to be a state tax refund. So that's there. Now, where do we go with this ruling? Well, the bad news is if you have clients who got payments in a state in 23, uh, that we're now, you know, we're treating them in the states issuing 1099s as if they were taxable, you probably want to watch this case. That said, I'm a little concerned that the courts may decide that, in essence, the state of Arizona has no standing to raise this case. The problem is they're not being taxed. Now, as I said, how the state's trying to work around this is by saying, no, 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 we're damaged by your bad ruling because are citizens who aren't getting the refunds, who are getting the refunds, then to send part of it back in taxes to the IRS, they're not spending the amount sent back as taxes. Because of that, we're not collecting our transaction privilege tax, like I said, effectively a sales tax, on those sales. And we've computed that that costs the state of Arizona and they have a computation that they have a number they've included on their document when they filed the initial complaint. I don't know that that's going to get them in. I have a feeling the courts may very well say, no, what has to happen here is a taxpayer has to not report it. The IRS come back and assess the tax, and then the taxpayer go to tax court and challenge it, or the taxpayer could pay the amount initially, but then file a claim for refund when the IRS disallows the claim for refund. Then the taxpayer would, sue in dis would then sue in district court attempting to get the money. So we'll have to see what goes on. I don't expect this to be fully resolved by the end of tax season. If Arizona were to win, there may be refund opportunities. Uh, but, you know, I just don't think, I think time's not on our side, you know, because essentially for this to go through the courts, the courts to pick it up, the ruling to go out. And even if the district court did manage to rule before, let's say, the end of March in favor of the state of Arizona, it is wildly likely that the federal government would appeal the decision, which then means we're on the Ninth Circuit calendar, and now we start waiting some more. So interesting case. Keep your eye on it, but 
Right now, I think it's going to take quite a while if we are, do ever get a ruling that these payments were not subject to tax. Uh, I think it may take a long time. If it's this case, I think it's probably a couple of years. If it's not this case, it could be even longer when we have to wait for a taxpayer who has the funds to do the challenge to end up paying, the, paying tax on this refund and then turning back around and you know, claiming that it shouldn't have been you know, it shouldn't have been taxed, therefore I should get a refund, filed a claim for refund, the IRS disallows it, and now that's why you go to court. So we'll keep our eye on this particular issue. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of February the 25th, 2024. Uh, Current Federal Tax Developments is always brought to you by your state society CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. I do follow the state societies online. So if you're in the if you're in these groups, you're members of them and have access to these discussions, fine, check in. That includes New Jersey Society uh, of CPAs, who already mentioned their online stuff here today, Arizona Society, Illinois Society of CPAs. Um, you know, we have Minnesota and or, and uh, Washington Society, get them all out there in that background. Plus, I do follow a discussion board that's conducted on the Idaho Society, so any of those will work. Otherwise, we'll check back in with you a week from now, see what else is going on, and let you know what else is going on and is the current thing happening in the area of current federal tax developments.